few weeks ago, I went to the new Rose Planetarium in New York City at the Museum of Natural History. You might have seen it's, uh, it was quite an architectural wonder, and it was in the papers a lot when it first opened. It's this great glass cube, glass and steel cube, and all the exhibits, and then they have the space show, you know, in the planetarium itself. And it's quite amazing. You're just sitting back, you know, in these seats, and there's the the dome. And you're taken on this journey through the cosmos, you know, starting with the planet Earth, and then the solar system, and the sun, and the galaxy, and the clusters of galaxy, and through the latest technology, you know, that feels very 3D-like. And what was so amazing was that even clusters of galaxies, you know, with hundreds of billions of stars, was just one tiny corner of the observable universe. And the immensity, you know, of the space and the immensity of the time that it took for light to go, you know, to travel through this space, it was really quite mind-boggling. And more than anything else, it reminded me of the practice. You know, and the vastness of the Buddha's vision. You know, he talks about countless world systems and all of these different planes of existence and the endless cycle of rebirth, of life and death. So it's a big, it's a big picture. Most of us, though, probably have not space-traveled to different realms, at least on our own steam. (laughs) There's another way, though, of (laughs) understanding the vastness of the journey. And it's not so much, you know, looking out to the immensity, but looking into the immensity the immensity of our own minds, of really exploring the nature of consciousness, the nature of awareness, how it is that we get involved and caught up in so much suffering, both for ourselves and in the world. And at the heart of it all, you know, is really the possibility of awakening, of freedom, of liberation. This is the heart of the Buddhist teachings. There are so many different Buddhist traditions, and they're all funneling now into the West. And many of you have probably practiced in different traditions. But really, they all converge in one understanding of what liberates the mind. And the Buddha said it very often and very clearly. You know, when he refers to himself, he, he refers to himself as the Tathagata one thus gone, or gone beyond. So he said, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, namely liberation through non-clinging. He said, this is the deathless, namely liberation through non-clinging. And centuries later, you know, in India, one of the great Vajrayana Tantric adepts, Talopa, who was teaching his disciple Naropa, he said, Naropa, you are not fettered by appearances, you are not fettered by experience, you are fettered by attachments, so cut your attachments. The message is the same liberation through non clinging, cutting through our attachments. A couple of years ago, there was a yogi in Barry, IMS, who came into an interview and declared his understanding of the first noble truth. He said, suffering is rope burn. You know, if a rope is being pulled through your hand and you're trying to hold on, what happens? We get rope burn. What's implicit in all of these teachings, which are saying the same thing, is that non-clinging is not 
some far-off distant state. You know, to imagine, well, if we practice for so many years, maybe we'll attain non-clinging. It's really to understand that not clinging is our practice now, moment to moment. All of the methods, you know, and all of the techniques, and all of the little tricks and strategies, and everything that's been mentioned, all is in the service of practicing the mind that is not grasping, because that is the mind of freedom. As you have seen so clearly, our unfolding experience keeps changing. And sometimes it's pleasant, and sometimes it's not pleasant. Sometimes it's sensations in the body, or the breath, or thoughts, or different emotions. It's a constant change and flow of experience. The practice remains the same. We're not practicing in order to get some better experience. That's not the point. We're practicing the mind that is not grasping at whatever it is that's arising. The Buddha called this the heart's release. We can feel it. We can feel that release of the heart when it's not contracted in attachment. So the question comes up, how can we practice it? How can we accomplish this now? you know, in the moment. One great doorway or approach to the practice of non-clinging, of non-grasping, is through refining our understanding, our seeing, our perception, our direct experience of impermanence, of change. What's so amazing, you know, is that such a profound truth of our lives is both so ordinary and so overlooked. We know that things change. This is not a great mystery. You know, and you could go up to anybody on the streets, any place, and say, do things change? And everybody would nod. Of course things change. But we don't live it. We're not living in the direct perception of it, in the direct experience of it, because if we were, we wouldn't be clinging. Do you try to hold on to current of water in a river? No, it's just, it's constantly flowing. We can experience this truth of change on every level. You know, if we had the, maybe through the, through the, Telescope, the great telescopes see the changing nature of these clusters of galaxies. You know, from that level, from that macro level, all the way down you know, to our human level, the changes of our body, the changes of the weather, the changes of circumstances, the changes in our relationships, down to the microscopic level, you know, the changing nature on the cellular level, on the atomic level. This is a truth that permeates every aspect, every level of experience. So it's not hard to see. It's like wherever we look, we can see it. It's just that we have to remember, we have to bring the wisdom mind so that as we're paying attention to experience, we actually can open to this truth of change. You know, when you leave the hall after the, after the talk, you get up from your seat and you walk to the door and you get your shoes and you walk outside. By the time you get outside, everything you experienced when you got up from your seat is completely gone. And everything you experienced from here to the door is completely gone. Our experience is like that. It's like water going over a waterfall. Moment after moment, it's arising and changing and dissolving. And this is how it's happening. We simply need to pay attention to it. In meditation, there are stages of practice where 
where the mindfulness is so strong that we're really seeing the arising and passing away of phenomena on a very momentary level. We're seeing this arising and passing moment after moment after moment. And that's a very great insight because it really shows us on an experiential level so deeply that there is nothing to hold on to. That our very being is simply a process of change. So given this, and given the truth of it, and the pervasiveness of it, and the obviousness of it, one of the great mysteries of our lives is why we live in delusion about it. You know, when we look back at our past experience, we see everything has gone. It's just all gone. The the best experiences we've had and the worst experiences we've had, where are they now? It's sort of like a dream. And yet, even though we all know this, when we look ahead, it's like we keep getting dazzled by the possibilities, you know, enjoyment or as if the next thing that we do, you know, the next vacation or the next meal or the next project or the next whatever, even the next breath in meditation, oh, that's going to do it. (laughs) We live in this delusion that some new experience will finally fulfill our longing. And this is samsara. This is the great deception of samsara, which samsara means perpetual wandering. It's the wheel of existence. And we can see it in our lives. We keep going after the next hit. And then that one passes away and it doesn't fulfill us. We go over the next one and the next one and the next one. And we keep revolving on this wheel until we see the truth of things. Until we see that because of the impermanent nature of everything, nothing has the capacity to fulfill its promise of bringing us to completion, of bringing us to peace. The liberating power of really seeing this clearly where we really are living in the experience of it with immediacy, a tremendous liberating power because in those moments of seeing it clearly, the mind is not grasping. The mind is not holding on. We see the futility of holding on. And it doesn't mean that we pull back from experience. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy pleasant things when they come in the flow of phenomena. But it's not driving us. And we're not grasping. We're not attached. The power of this is so great that the Buddha said that it would be better to live for a single day seeing the momentary arising and passing of phenomena, that stage of insight I mentioned, where we're really seeing the impermanence deeply. Better to live a single day to see that than a hundred years without seeing it. I find that a completely startling statement. Because what does that say about all the things we value? And all the things we're living for? And again, it's not that they don't have an important place in our lives, and they do have some value, but it's not the liberating insight. And so if our aspiration if that aspiration of bodhicitta is to awaken, not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of all, it's essential that we see this. And essential that we actually experience the mind free of clinging, free of grasping, even if it's just for short moments. So in our practice, in meditation, we can really apply this very directly by paying attention not only to what it is that's arising, you know, the basic mindfulness of what is happening, and not only being mindful of our relationship to what's happening, 
You know, is it with resistance? Is it with attachment? But also paying attention to what happens to each experience. What happens to a sensation, to a sound, to a thought, to an emotion? Because when we're looking at that, observing that, we see directly in the moment that all of these phenomena are there, they arise, they pass away. Don't underestimate the value, the importance of seeing this. Ananda was one of the uh, most beloved disciples of the Buddha. He was the Buddha's cousin and he was the Buddha's attendant uh, for many years. And one day Ananda was uh, praising the many wonderful qualities of the Buddha. You know, his great compassion, his great love, and his great wisdom, and he's going on and on, praising the wonderful qualities. And the Buddha came uh, by, and the Buddha replied to Ananda, again referring to himself as the Tathagata. That being so, Ananda, all these other wonderful qualities, remember this too as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. For the Tathagata, feelings are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Perceptions are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Thoughts are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Remember this too, Ananda, as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. The message could not be clearer. But seeing directly the arising, the presence, the passing away, seeing the changing nature, is a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Buddha, which we can join in. It has liberating power. And it's not only each experience that arises and passes away like a breath or a sound. Now, as we pay more careful attention, we see that even what we're calling a breath is not just one thing. One breath or half a breath, there's there's a flow, there's a current of many, many sensations or in a movement, in one movement, in just part of a movement, in just the lifting. If we're really present, if we're in our bodies, feeling what's going on. So many things. It's a, it's a flaw. It's a, so many changes happening. The more we see it, the more we practice seeing it, the more it deconditions the habit of the grasping mind. Everything we do in our practice the primary object, the mental noting, developing concentration, strengthening the mindfulness, all is in the service of the mind free of grasping, free of clinging. Okay, so we hear this. But the Buddha went a step further. He probably thought, well, it's very obvious But just in case people don't get it, I'll point out those areas where we do habitually cling. So it's like, he reminds us of those arenas in our our lives where clinging or grasping is very common. So we can really make a point to pay attention. Because it's in the seeing of it and in the letting go that we experience the heart's release. Literally, the heart relaxes. The first arena of major clinging in our lives is the attachment to pleasant sense experience. Pleasant sights and sounds and pleasant sensations in the body. Pleasant thoughts, pleasant feelings, pleasant emotions. I mean, how many of us could really come in to the sitting 
without preference. Without pain, pleasure, it doesn't matter. Well, it is possible to come to that place, but the gravitational pull of the pleasure is very strong. This is deeply conditioned. This is not just a superficial pattern in us. Our mind has been habituated over countless lifetimes to want what's pleasant, to hold on to it. It's the wanting mind. I call it, or one, one representation of it, uh, I call it catalog consciousness. <laughs> Do you ever have the experience when you're not wise enough to not even look? The catalogs come in the mail. If you make the mistake of even opening the first page, and I just watch my, you know, keep looking, keep looking. It's like I'm looking for something to want. (laughs) And it's extremely difficult to put it down. (laughs) It's just there's there's this energy, you know, that pulls us. In meditation, you know, the, the pull to just be lost in reveries. You can sit, get lost in some pleasant dreamlike state. It's great. You sit an hour, you know, it goes by fast. <laughs> when we investigate our attachment to pleasant experience, we really begin to learn firsthand about the power of addiction. Now, it is an addictive quality of the mind, the power of fascination, of becoming enchanted. One point in my practice in India, this goes back years, I'd been, I'd been in India for some time, practicing intensively, and my mind and body were just in this glorious place. You know, the whole body was like space and light and... The mind was clear and lucid, and it's the kind of sittings, you know, where you think you're going to get enlightened any minute. It's just <laughs> really. I mean, it, it feels like that. It feels like okay, this you know, something could really happen here. <laughs> and then where I was, I was staying at this Burmese vihara kind of rest house in Bodh Gaya in India. And what they used to serve us in the evening, unlike here, <laughs> we used to get a little cup of tea and like two bananas about that long. I mean, really, just these tiny bananas, and maybe on a good day, a japati or something. So it's very, very minimal tea. So I'm sitting there in this glorious state, waiting to get enlightened. The tea bell rings. I need my banana. (laughs) And sure enough, you know, up I got from this sitting. And it was just astounding to me to watch my mind and to watch myself and to watch the power of it. You know, that's, that's the great help of uh, practicing with eight precepts, which means you don't eat after lunch, because then it's not even a question. You don't have to battle with this. When pleasant feelings arise, either in the moment, you know, some experience, or some anticipated pleasure, you know, we were thinking and imagining, anticipating something, can we contemplate the impermanence of those pleasant feelings? Yes, the pleasant feeling may arise, but it's going to pass and change like the innumerable pleasant feelings that we've had already have passed in our lives. If we can reflect on that and really remember, then we're not driven. We're not, we're not acting out of an addictive place. Then, depending on the circumstances, we can either move toward it or not. But it's not coming from a place of delusion, not coming from a place of ignorance. In addition to the pleasant sense experience, There's also the wanting mind for pleasant meditative experience. Kamala spoke last night of the factors of enlightenment. And as we practice, they get very strong and a tremendous kind of happiness. 
a kind of happiness that we have never known before. It permeates the mind and body. What's very interesting is that at a certain stage of practice, all of these factors of enlightenment are called corruptions of insight. And it's not because they've suddenly turned unwholesome. It's because those very factors of enlightenment become the object of our attachment, of our clinging. And we need to see that, otherwise we get stuck. The Buddha said, not to get caught externally, not to get stuck internally. The non-clinging from both sides. Freedom is not in some new experience. It's in the mind of not clinging now. There's one mantra which I would like to suggest to you, which will open up the possibility of awakening tonight. (laughs) This is a very powerful mantra. (laughs) It has great... Okay, you ready? (laughs) It doesn't matter to what we don't cling. (laughs) And so we don't have to wait for some special experience not to cling to. (laughs) Why not cling now? (laughs) Because it doesn't matter to what we don't cling. Now is as good a time as any. None of this means that we close off to experience. Now, the implication of not clinging is not withdrawal. It's not indifference. It's simply not holding on, not grasping. The mind of not clinging is vast, it's spacious. It receives everything, but it holds on to nothing. And that's what we're practicing. That is the practice, moment to moment. So that's the first area of attachment to look at to the pleasant, whether it's pleasant sense experience or pleasant meditative states, that we can be with those experiences. It's not pulling back, but it's learning to not grasp, not hold on. The second big arena of grasping, of attachment, has caused such an incredible amount of suffering for ourselves in our own lives, and in the world. And it's so rare that we look at this. And that is the attachment we have to views and opinions. We are very attached to our views and opinions about things, even about things which we know nothing. (laughs) It's really quite astounding to, to watch. The views come out, Well, we don't really have a clue, but we have an opinion. It's also very helpful to keep an open mind about things that we might know something about, you know, which actually it's a view or opinion that's based on some experience, but our experience is always limited. You know, we're not omniscient. And so even when it is based on experience, can we keep an open mind and see that yeah, there may be other perspectives, other viewpoints, other ways of looking at things? How much conflict in the world has come from attachment to views, attachment to political views, to economic views, to religious views, people killing each other? Now, because of a religious belief, it's sadly ironic. We need to look at this in ourselves because we do it also. The Buddha warned against this very clearly in the text. He said over and over again that we should not 
exalt our own views and disparage others, the sense that this is the truth and everything else is false. That attachment to views is as much a bondage, as much an attachment, as much a contraction of mind as attachment to anything else. Bankai, who was a great uh, Japanese Zen master, I think of the 17th or 16th century, he had one nice little phrase summing this up. He said, don't side with yourself. <laughs> and it's just interesting to watch in the normal course of our relationships, how, how many relationship problems happen because we side with ourselves. We get attached to our way of seeing things or viewing things. It's a very freeing practice to pay enough attention so that we can see that it's happening. Okay, can I let go? Can I open up? Can I... The Dalai Lama, I was, I was teaching at a Buddhist Christian conference at Gethsemane Abbey. This was maybe four years ago or so. That's the abbey in Kentucky where Thomas Merton lived. And there were all these, you know, half, half the group were uh, Christians, Trappists, and half uh, from the Buddhist side. And the Dalai Lama, in his usual wonderful way, you know, in a very non-sectarian way, he said, your way of understanding may be right for you. Mine is right for me. You know, and it wasn't that this is the absolute truth and that is not. It's like for each one of us, what's skillful? What's the skillful means for letting go of clinging? And each one of us may have a very different skillful means. Attachment, clinging to sense pleasures, that grasping, the wanting mind. Attachment to our views and opinions. The deepest attachment we have, the one that is most deeply rooted, is the attachment we have to the concept, the idea of self, of I. And this clinging to the idea of self is really at the root of our samsaric existence. So we need to understand this. You know, so much of the Buddhist teachings, when we hear it, is just common sense. When we hear about impermanence, it's not difficult to understand that, even if it's difficult to really be with it moment to moment. But when we hear about selflessness, selflessness of non-self, that is not so amenable to understanding through our common sense. I mean, it's counterintuitive. We feel like there's a self. We feel like there's an I. Our whole lives are revolving about this notion. So it takes a very careful looking. This is really the jewel of the Buddha's awakening, the jewel of the Buddha's enlightenment. So we need to really look into this and investigate it, because on the surface it's very puzzling. What could it mean to say there's no self? There's no self who came to the retreat. You know, and who practices and who falls in love and who gets angry and when we look carefully look at our own experience, not theoretically. We see that the self, the notion of self, is a concept about a certain appearance. There's a certain appearance of things, and then we put a concept on it and solidify the concept. So, for example, and this is a common example, After rain, you go outside and maybe you see a rainbow. You know, in the first, kind of that moment of delight, a rainbow, there's this beautiful arc of color in the sky. Call your friends, oh, look at the rainbow. Well, what is a rainbow? A rainbow is an appearance arising out of the coming together of certain conditions. There's air and light and moisture in a certain way, and a rainbow appears. There's no 
thing in itself, which is the rainbow, independent of the appearance arising out of the conditions. But we tend, we put the concept rainbow, and then if we don't really reflect deeply, we tend to think of the rainbow as something existing in and of itself. Once I was, I was on Maui, um, and a friend took me on the North Shore to uh, this area where there was a blowhole. You know what a blowhole is? You know, it's, the lava has come down to the ocean and there's an underground, like a cave. And it's open to the waves and there's a, a little hole at the top of the cave. So when the, the surf comes in, uh, there's like a geyser out of the blowhole. You know, and every time the wave comes in, you see it and then the geyser uh, subsides. So I was just standing there watching it. And it was interesting because the water would come out of the blowhole and depending on the conditions, there would be a little rainbow right there. And then the water would fall away and the rainbow would disappear. And then the next one would come and maybe the cloud covered the sun and there was no rainbow. And then the next time came a rainbow. And it was such a, it was such a good illustration of it being an appearance dependent on conditions not something in and of itself. Well, the great surprise is that each one of us is like a rainbow. There's an appearance of Joseph, or Steve, or Sally, or Kamala, or each one of us. But what we're calling self, what we're calling Joseph, is an appearance of certain conditions coming together. Okay, new example. <laughs> you go to the movies. You get totally absorbed in the story. It's a love story, or it's a horror movie, or it's whatever. You know, we get totally lost in it. And really get caught up. And we are, our emotions are engaged. And What's happening? Is anybody really falling in love on the screen? Or is anybody getting killed? No, it's just light. It's just colored lights, you know, being projected onto a screen and moving in a certain way, and it appears as if something is happening. It appears as if there's a solid, substantial self going through life. But on another level, on a deeper level of understanding, we see that there's not anything substantial there. There is the appearance, and we do live on that level, so it's not to deny that, but it's not the essence of what is happening. So then the question would arise, well, why do we feel like there's a self? Why is it so strongly conditioned? Even when we know, you know, in some level, that Self is a concept, like rainbow, or like what's happening in a movie. Still, the felt sense of self arises when we identify with varying arising aspects of our experience. So, for example, we identify a lot with the body. You know, we wake up in the morning, we look in the mirror, and there's that moment of recognition. Well, here I am again. <laughs> and it looks like me. And So we are quite identified with this body as being I, as being self. But just think about the changes of the body from a baby to a child to a young person to a young adult to an older adult to old age. Just imagine you know, just the body in all of these stages, all of these changes, and to a corpse. Which one is the self? Who's the I? Who's Joseph? Take it to another level. You know, have you, I don't know if you've ever seen or seen pictures of an autopsy, of the body opened up. You know, and all the organs and blood and skeleton. Yeah, I'm the liver. (laughs) We probably wouldn't identify the self as being the liver, you know, or the guts or the blood or the bones. But somehow, it's all neatly packaged in skin. Yep, that's me. 
it's because we don't see deeply enough. You know, we're living on the surface of things, and this is where the Buddha's pointing out. What is this body? Does it make sense to call it self, to call it I? When we look deeply and see what it is, we see that this is not the self. This is not, this is the wonderful, amazing mechanism and systems, and I mean, it's, it's miraculous. But it's not I, it doesn't belong to anybody. And yet our attachment to the body and our attachment to other people's bodies <laughs> is both very strong, but also the cause, it's really the cause, of tremendous fear in our lives. Fear of loss, fear of death. Why is there that fear? Because we're attached to the body. So there's something to look at here. One of my very favorite stories is that of the time of the death of His Holiness, the 16th Karmapa. And of course, the 17th is now back with us. But he, the 16th died in, outside of Chicago and his body was wasted. You know, cancer and it was, you know, for many weeks, uh, his body was going through terrible, terrible things. There's an account of his time there and of course, he was in a remarkable space with it, and just by his the way he was relating, you know, he was kind of converted. All the nurses and doctors they couldn't believe that somebody was relating to the body like this. And at one point, when a lot of his disciples were so, you know, distraught about his imminent death, he said, "Don't worry, nothing happens." Enough. <laughs> That's like the understanding, somebody got killed on the movie screen, nothing has really happened. It's just at a superficial level of perception that something happens. When we really understand deeply the nature of the mind, the nature of the body, free of clinging, free of attachment, it's a whole different space, it's a whole different reality. So this is a possibility for us as we practice the mind of no clinging, not clinging to the body. We create a sense of self when we become identified with our thoughts, which we do a lot. All of these thoughts come and go, and we jump in and identify. This thought is me. I'm thinking. I'm planning. I'm judging. We identify with the stories that we make up about ourselves and others. How many stories have you made up about other people in the retreat? (laughs) You may not even know them. But it doesn't stop the mind from all kinds of judgments and projections. One time I was practicing with Upandita Rayamas and I was doing some walking meditation and I glanced up at a window upstairs in the room he was staying and I saw him watching me. You know, he was watching me walk. I got very mindful. <laughs> or, I, or I should say, I pretended to be very mindful. <laughs> you know, very slow, lift, move, place, and back and forth. And you know, after one or two lengths, I glance up, and he's still watching. So I just keep on walking, walking. So this went on for 15, 20 minutes, and finally I couldn't imagine why he was watching me walk for so long. So then I stopped and I looked more carefully. It was a lampshade. <laughs> And I had created this whole reality, <laughs> living in the reality. <laughs> the sad news is that this is most of our lives. And it's worth seeing that. It's worth seeing how much of the time we are lost in our thoughts, identified with our thoughts in our projections, Now, the great power of a retreat, and if nothing else happened in this retreat but you saw this, it would be tremendous. And it's not difficult to see. So, 
And that is by looking, by becoming mindful directly of our thoughts, of how they arise and disappear. To, to see and understand that when thoughts are unnoticed, they have this tremendous power in the mind. Thoughts rule us. Thoughts tell us what to do, where to go, what to wear. It's like thoughts are the dictators of the mind when we're unaware of them. And when we are aware that we're thinking, we see that a thought is little more than nothing. It's just this momentary little blip of energy. It has no power at all. The only power that thoughts have is the power that we give them. If we could see this directly, about the nature of thought, it's not the content, it's not the story, it's the very nature of the thought process. There's nothing much there. I just want to read something from Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, who's one of the great, great Tibetan masters of the last century. Like waves, all the activities of this life have rolled endlessly on, yet they have left us empty-handed. Myriads of thoughts have run through our minds, but all they have done is increase our confusion and dissatisfaction. Normally we operate under the deluded assumption that everything has some sort of true, substantial reality. But when we look more carefully, we find that the phenomenal world is like a rainbow, vivid and colorful, but without any tangible existence. When a rainbow appears, we, feel many, we see many beautiful colors, yet a rainbow is not something we can clothe ourselves with or wear as an ornament. It simply appears through the conjunction of various conditions. Thoughts arise in the mind in just the same way. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is no, therefore no reason why thoughts should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. And this goes on in that vein. There is endless opportunity to gain insight into this. Now, every time a thought arises, don't struggle with it. Now, it's an opportunity to really see and understand, well, what is the nature of a thought? What is a thought? And when we look in that way, we see that it is really insubstantial. Tremendously freeing, because so much of our suffering comes from our belief in and our identification with the various thought patterns that arise. Notice the difference, and this, is a, this would be a very valuable meditative exercise. Notice the difference in your experience between when you're lost in a thought what is that like? And when you're aware that you're thinking. Just notice the difference between those two experiences. When you become aware that you're thinking, it's like stepping out of the movie theater. Oh yeah, that was just a movie. We create this felt sense of I when we identify with the body. We get attached to the body when we identify with thoughts. We create this felt sense of I, of self, when we identify with emotions. Emotions are a powerful force in our lives. It's perhaps what we most personalize. I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm fearful. And then we don't even stop there with that identification. We add to it, we build to it. I'm an angry person. I'm a fearful person. It's like building a skyscraper of self on top of momentary conditions. Emotions are like the rainbow. Certain conditions come together and we feel the emotions. Notice how often we're just going along in our lives or in our practice here and just a quick passing thought or image can trigger a flood of feeling, a flood of emotion. Maybe something about the past or some anticipation about the future. 
remember I was taking a walk in Barry, and there was something coming up, I don't quite remember now what, but it was something I was having some anxiety about. Probably some meeting or other. And I was taking the walk, and I noticed that I would just think of this thing happening, and all of a sudden I would feel anxious. And then, because I noticed it, it went away. But it interested me so much. So I purposely thought it again. (laughs) And it was amazing. When the thought came again, again, (laughs) the rush of anxiety. And I did this like three or four or five times until it became so clear that that feeling, that emotion, was not self, it was not I. It was given the condition of the thought, it led to the feeling of the emotion. The more we see the contingent nature of emotion, the less we personalize them. And again, I I want to reiterate, this does not mean that we pull back from feeling them. It's not a withdrawal, it's not an indifference, it's not a closing down. It's being totally open to the emotions that are arising freely. Can we feel them without identification with them, without grasping, without clinging? Then the emotions just wash through, like everything else. The most subtle level of clinging, the place where we create the sense of self most deeply, even when we see the body, thoughts, and emotions, when we get some handle on them being, changing, impermanent phenomena, we create a sense of self in the identification with awareness. Well, I'm the one who's knowing all of this. I'm knowing the thoughts and sounds and sensations. We identify with awareness, with the knowing. This is a very uh, subtle and difficult area of clinging to let go of. To let go of the sense of the observer, the witness, that reference point of observation. One way of doing this, which I found very helpful in my practice, is re-languaging in our minds and understanding our experience. Re-languaging it in the passive voice. So, for example, you're feeling the breath. The breath is being known. A sound is being known. Instead of I'm knowing the breath, I'm knowing a sound, I'm knowing a movement, breath is being known, sound is being known, thought is being known. It takes the I out of it. It takes the self out of it. So moment after moment, we can just be in this amazing and mystery of consciousness. Moment after moment, things are being known. Effortlessly, spontaneously. Free of I, free of self. So then we can look into the question, known by what? should hold you for a couple of days. <laughs> it's really quite amazing. Just in the simplest thing, you, know, you move your arm and the sensations of the movement are being known. They're being known. No one's doing anything. They're just being known completely, effortlessly, spontaneously. Well, known by what? To stay right there to stay in that question, you know, in the exploration of the very nature of awareness, the very nature of consciousness. Not theoretically, you're right there in the experience of it. Things are being known, known by what? There's nothing to find. The nature of awareness is like space. It's empty. It's clear. It's unobstructed. It's invisible. There's nothing to see. There's nothing to touch. There's nothing to hold. And yet this knowing is going on. Buddhadasa, who was a great Thai master, 
of the last century, he said, we should really call mind emptiness, but because of the knowing faculty, we call it mind. So it's this exploration of the union of emptiness and cognizance. Emptiness and knowing. We can do that moment after moment. This is not difficult to do. It's just being there mindfully, moment after moment. Things being known. And being right there in the experience. Known by what? The Buddha summed up the whole practice in one very direct teaching. He said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Not the body, not thoughts, not sensations, not emotions, not awareness. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Whoever has heard this, he said, has heard all of the teachings. Whoever practices this has practiced all the teachings. And whoever realizes this has realized all the teachings. So this is what we're doing. You know, you want to use the techniques and methods and teachings all in the service of this. This is the practice moment to moment. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. This is the practice of freedom. And we do it now. We do it moment to moment. I'll just close with a few lines from T.S. Eliot, from the Four Quartets, which in beautiful language you know, captures this, this state of freedom. He said, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything, and all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. Just as you're sitting now, settling into the body, Be aware of the sensations of the breath being known. When you're undistracted, they're being known effortlessly. Whatever the sensations may be. Sensations are known. Sounds are being known. Simply rest in the ease of that awareness. And hold the question, known by what? Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Flow of experience being known spontaneously, effortlessly, when we rest in the simplicity of the moment. (laughs) 